welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Tower of Swallows, Chapter 1. As I mentioned uh, at the end of Baptism Fire, there are, you know, two ways to do Tower of Swallows. Tower, uh, Tower of the Swallow, Tower of Swallows. It's, it's been translated from Polish, which is not an easy language to translate. And so there's those different translation versions. And I find myself gravitating to Tower of Swallows simply for the fact that it rolls off my tongue better. It just makes more sense to me. Um, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Uh, whatever Sipskowski says it is, is what it is. I just found Tower of Swallows and Tower of Gulls easier, easier to say than Tower of the Swallow, Tower of the Gull. So this chapter is sort of a tone piece. This is, you know, we're transitioning from Baptism of Fire, which was at times very dark, but had a very D&D adventure-y fun feel. And it ended on a very heartwarming, you know, bit where Geralt has been knighted and he can't help but smile and all that stuff and so we transition to this and this is Ciri's book whereas Babs's Fire was Geralt's book and what better way to you know tackle that than through almost a dark fairy tale lens um you know the the excerpt the very first one you know, uh, begins with something that happens later in the book was found by others, and the way it's described is very lyrical, like it's being said in like a fairy tale uh, over a fire. The second excerpt is the fortune teller. It's one of my favorite excerpts from these books um, because it's so indicative of series arc. The fortune teller says, hey, I can give you anything you want. Wealth, power, riches beyond your wildest dreams. What do you want? And Siri simply asks for a horse, uh, a reliable horse, and a sword to cut down evil and allow me to pass by as quickly as I came to get away from here effectively. Her three wishes are transportation, a defense mechanism, and to be free. That's literally, if you take you know, obscure everything else and don't look at it literally, you have her wish right there, which is to be free. Uh, and, and then we transition to, uh, from the excerpts to the beginning of the, the official beginning of the chapter, which uh, sees a lot of different people, you know, wake up. Uh, there's bad omens in the air, blood red moon, wild hunt, uh, you know, uh, is on the move. You know, there's just this sense of unease and darkness. A dark time has come. And a bunch of people connected to Siri one way or another, whether they've personally met her or involved with everything that's going on or whatnot, all wake up suddenly. And Iola, Naneki, Triss, uh, and Yara are all at the Temple of Mledele. And they all, because they've all had personal connection to Siri and Geralt, they all get very concerned and start trying to figure out, you know, what happened. And there, there's this little bit where Yara's freaking out and it's scaring all the acolytes. And Triss basically goes, go buckle up. She she does it in a way like, you're the only man, blah, blah, blah. You know, you need to set the example. That's not what she's actually saying. What she's actually saying is, calm the fuck down. And then uh, we transition to Visigoda of Cordovo, the little hermit. Uh, and he stumbles upon a body. He uh, and he first mistakes this body for a boy, 
severely wounded, um, starts treating them, finds out it's a girl, and the more he describes it, the more this uh, person sounds like Siri. And then eventually, Siri wakes up. It becomes essentially a, a two-hander uh, where Siri and Visigoto just talk. Um, it's a very simplistic scene, and it's very nice, and it really sets the tone, because ultimately this book, um, along with the next book, um, is essentially two people sitting down talking, and that relays the story to us. And it's a clever framing device, in my opinion. I really like the way the, the Visigoda stuff works out. Through Visigoda's eyes, we learn some more stuff about what's going on. You know, uh, Siri's gotten a tattoo, a rose tattoo uh, on her thigh, in her thigh area. Uh, we'll find out about that later. She has a scar or a wound that will probably heal into a scar because it didn't heal properly. Uh, it's too deep. And we know that Stefan Skelen gave it to her. We know that she's been beaten. And she talks about that, um, you know, that Leo Bonhart took everything from her. So it can be implied that he's responsible for that. Um, and so it's it's essentially a Visigoto and Siri sort of battle of wits trying to figure out how much they can relay and how much they can hold back. Visigoto, you know, is a political criminal, effectively. He, uh, you know, used to live in the North, was a philosopher, a doctor, worked in Oxenfurt. You know, it was considered immoral, whatever he pu published, so he ran. Went to Nilfgaard during the Super Supers time, and, well, um, he wrote a paper denouncing totalitarianism and fascism, so he got you know, got another death warrant on his head, and that won't disappear, and Amir has not rescinded it, and so he fled to Ebbing, which eventually was annexed by <laughs> Nilfgaard. The guy just can't catch a break, but he's he's a humble hermit now, and so he never lies directly to Siri. He simply says, I'm a hermit, and that is true from a certain point of view, uh, as, uh, as one Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, uh, that he is more than that. But he's not anymore, and does it really matter? Much like Siri, she passes herself off, and he suspects, abandoned. And, and he, uh, you know, figures out that she was Falca uh, of the Rats, and he knows that's not her name. And then over time, they begin to sort of quarrel with each other, and he figures out, and she directly you know, addresses it, that she is not just some naive young girl, a bandit, some poor person. She is someone of high authority. He just doesn't know it. And so uh, there's this beautiful battle where who's in control of this situation? Siri is wounded, tired, exhausted, broken. But uh, she still has that righteous anger in her. She has been clawing tooth and nail for freedom, not succeeding all that well and ending up in the worst possible spots, but still all she's crawling towards. Meanwhile, Visgodo is the obvious authority figure, and yet he is frail, he's old, he's weak. So who's the authority here, necessarily? And we come to realize that they're both in control in their own way. And essentially, Visigoda is the kind of person uh, Siri needs right now. Not, not only just on the physical sense that he is a doctor and he can treat her, but also the fact that he is willing to tell her no, first of all, and then be willing to listen. 
Uh, so, with the you know, Siri has been living a life of hedonism with the rats. Killing, fucking, stealing, anything she wants. And she's been abused that way through Missile, who has actively done horrible things to her and got her locked up in Stockholm Syndrome. With Visigodo, you know, he's not going to do that any, uh, any of that to her. You know, matter of fact, when she questions that... Uh, he goes, you know, I could, I'm old enough to be your father or, you know, more. I'm not, I'm not like that. And it really goes to show you Siri's cynical view on things and how she has come to pretty much, um, view everything as a threat that must be taken out. So when she's wanting to leave immediately, he has the strength to say no. And so he will listen to her. He will advise her, but he will stand firm and say no to her when needed. Basically, he's the parent uh, right now, n you know, not in the, the emotional sense that Geralt and Yennefer are, but in the, the way in which a child who has acted up uh, needs to be taught a lesson, and yet you can't be too harsh because otherwise they might learn the wrong lesson. So you have to come down to the level, get them to understand, but still be strict enough so that they understand what they did was wrong. Throughout all this, you know, you, you will get her slowly, slowly letting him know that she's not an idiot. Uh, that, that wonderful bit where he recites the poem that she finishes, you know, saying, you know, I'm not just an idiot, you know, I'm not just some poor girl, I am someone. There is th this interesting idea. She's been out of it for six days and uh he says he suspects that the wound was sustained no more than a week ago um and she was wounded on the 23rd of september which was two weeks ago this is the first week uh, midway through october <laughs> and what's funny is we kind of learn how calendars work and it's kind of a riff on the historical gregorian calendar shenanigans where like well the a certain subsection of uh, people redid the calendar in their own image but then stole other things from the other calendar so the elves were positioned on the eight spokes of a wheel while uh the human calendar was based on lunar cycles and uh and each of them had various reasons for that you know uh for the humans specifically, it was it was a more of a, a need of supply and demand capitalism, and you know keep the farmers uh, going and, and sort of keep the work schedule all right. Where the elves, it was more aligned with uh, holidays and spirituality. And so when humans brought their own uh, holidays, they stole the the exact days of the elvens. Uh, the oven holidays. Thus, in, in effect, they're the same holiday. Much like how in real life, you know, the Gregorian calendar stole from other religions uh, and made those uh, Christian. Two holidays separate, but on the same time. You know, uh, Winter's Eve, you know, the solstice uh, is Christmas. Uh, and stuff like that. But uh, she's on for sure how you know, this time lapse happened, one, and uh, we'll find out more about that later. I think one of the, the most interesting bits of this chapter is the way in which, not only is it for, it being the first chapter of the book, you know, it has to reintroduce us to the characters, reintroduce us to the current ongoing stuff, as well as set up some stuff that will be in the future, 
of this book as well as some other books so it has some of that itty bitty lines uh that i'll get into later it's all about tone as i said when i when i first started this was um when when visigoto finds siri uh after he's uh helped her and then when they start talking basically the same paragraph is put but it's slightly worded differently each time you know uh, if a person was to come and look upon this cottage, they would see, um, blah, 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 and then, uh, but they couldn't, for, you know, this area was covered in fog, uh, and was closed off, and no one could ever find it. Uh, it's a very fairy tale like thing, this island, or, or house in the, the middle of nowhere, this misty area, you know, it's, it's not anything uh, mystical necessarily but it's really setting the tone this is a book in which siri talks to visigoto that's the entire book and through her tellings and through some other framing devices we will get into later the story of this book is told it is done over a fire even it is classic fairy tale stuff the person who is talking to you over the fire the orator the, the oral tradition of stories that that really sets the tone i think for the book incredibly well because when i think of tower swallows i think of all that it does for series a character her arc her progression and how um it is made clear especially in this one that choice you know, even if it wasn't obvious before, even though it is to me, that choice is the big thing. And she really paints that out in the final bit where she begins her story. They begin talking initially when Visigoto mentions that uh, mentions his history. He talks about he was an ethicist. And, you know, he's, he studied uh, ethics and morality. And she asks him, what is ethics? And he relays it. <laughs> But she doesn't agree necessarily. She has problems with his definition. Uh, in relaying her story, she's having difficulty. She is, you know, taking long pauses. She's struggling to find her words. And the emotionality of it is this is the story. She relays the, the events of the previous books. as And then she ca catches up to where she is now. And that will then be relayed to us through the chapters that all of this has taken a great toll on her. She has become cynical. Nothing but pure cynicism. She sees no light in the world. This is so reverse of the young princess that we met in the woods back in, in uh, you know, short stories, isn't it? Who's so firm in her destiny, so firm of her place in life, and so happy and so childlike. And now we have a girl who is so beaten and battered by everything that's happened the fact that she's had no choice in the matter at all and all she wants is a horse a sword to be able to get out of here and she has the horse now uh you know she has kelpie a black horse who uh visigoto even relays that potentially it's related to the myths of the kelpie um which are uh a, a celtic myth um, in a real world, as we come to understand, we come to understand that fortune teller's uh, uh, extract and how it fits into the way she's relaying the story. She has nothing, 
And so all she wishes for is the things to get her away from here. As far as way she can. And it's very, very sad. It, it's, a, it's a very good introductory chapter. It sets the tone. It sets the pace. Not a whole lot of big, you know, thematic stuff necessarily. I mean, there is some. Uh, but it is more about establishing the mood and tone of this book. Because, we, like I said, we went from an adventurous book to a very dark book. And so that tonal whiplash needs to be guided um, in a way that works and really shows you the inner workings of Ciri's mind of how dark this world has become to her um, and how much she has lost and how much she is different from that little girl we met in Brooklyn. There, there are some things of spoileries I can go over, but... Um, you know, and I'll, I'll just briefly say them, so spoiler warning, you know, the, she says, I am death, which, uh, you know, brings out her, um, her inner workings of her cynical mind, and how she is taking that to heart, how everyone around her dies, and if you remember, I brought this up, uh, is that, uh, Siri being death can be read into Death Dogs Your Footsteps, Geralt, uh, What's the one thing that follows him? Siri. Um, and so, you know, his conversation with death itself could have been real, could have been a hallucination, who knows? Maybe he's always been talking to death. Maybe death is his child. And that adds into that, that it really feeds into where she's going, her cynical outlook, and adds a new reading on the previous stuff. And additionally, the time stuff, it's because she time-traveled, we'll be getting into that. But, uh, you know, it's it, it's interesting the way he handles it. Um, you know, I mean, he even went so far as to obscure Siri at the beginning, describing her through Visigodo's lens, who initially thinks she's a boy, um, so that there is enough disbelief, and so it feels very fairy tale like um, And I think I find myself really enjoying this uh, chapter, whereas some people might go, well, you know, it's a very basic chapter, but it's all about mood. It's all about tone. Uh, and I enjoy that. I like mood pieces. Um, so uh, I'll see you next time. Until then, bye. <laughs>